Hello, and welcome back to the Neuroaffirming Parent Podcast. This is the show where we explore the multifaceted world of neurodiversity and how it intersects with various aspects of our lives. I'm your host, the Neuroaffirming Parent, and today we're going to talk about my experience of the gifted education. We're going to include neurodiversity in this. So let's jump right in. Let's remind ourselves what neurodiversity is. So we're acknowledging that there's a diverse range of neurobiological differences in individuals, and it's the natural variation of the human experience. Giftedness is a neurotype. Now, that might be a controversial topic because there's a lot of misinformation about giftedness. Not a lot of people talk about it in the way of neuroscience, but there is a wonderful organization and website called Grow Gifted, G-R-O Gifted, and I hope to have them on for an interview one day, but their website and their research into the gifted brain and how it's different really helped me advocate in school for my daughter, but I want to make this episode a little bit more personal and kind of look back at my memory and knowing what I know now about giftedness, I want to talk about what I saw in my childhood that would also indicate giftedness that not many people attribute because I'm unique. I am not just gifted. I am 2E or twice exceptional. And so that doesn't just include a gifted person and dyslexia like I am. That includes gifted and autism, gifted and ADHD, gifted and autism and ADHD, and all of the wonderful human variations that exist in this world. But we want to strip it down and talk about what does it mean to be gifted? Now, I know that's confusing because if you just search the hashtag gifted, you're going to come up with something totally unrelated. But gifted individuals are people who demonstrate exceptional abilities. And it's usually in areas like intelligence, creativity, art, leadership skills. And I mean, you can describe a lot of successful neurodivergent people as that. So that's why neurodiversity is so great because we recognize diverse cognitive profiles. Giftedness highlights the unique strengths and talents that individuals possess. Now, there is a growing argument I see online of the difference between certain education models. And let me just explain a little bit more about that because I was identified in 2002. Do I know if I'd be identified in any other era? I don't think so. Because prior to the No Child Left Behind standardized testing era, thanks to George Bush in the United States, most gifted kids, you had to be referred by a parent if they asked or if a teacher recognized you and requested that you entered into a gifted program. And if you talk to any older adults, they'll usually say they didn't like that gifted program because it meant that they had to be like a student teacher almost, or they had to help tutor classmates, or they just were going to give They were just given extra classwork to do. And that's not what a gifted student wants. So when we talk about giftedness in the form of neurodiversity, it's important to recognize that there's an aspect within the broader context. And 
gifted individuals do have certain traits, they have certain cognitive needs, and we have a different way of processing information. And that's where gifted education comes in because it was first developed with this idea thanks to St. Louis Helgelian's um, organization in St. Louis, Missouri. And so that goes way back. I'm not going to go deep into the history because I've made a YouTube video. Nobody cared. But <laughs> essentially, it's based on German idealism and which is related to the introduction of kindergarten and play-based therapy. Um, not therapy, but play-based education. And it's really just valuing individual strengths. Right now, does that align with what gifted education looks like today? Not exactly. Because I don't believe they wanted to have some exclusive, exclusionary VIP education program that was only meant for elite students. Um, and the problem with education today in gifted education is it's primarily white males. And there are a few people in gifted history that we have to blame for that. There's somebody named Terman, and he created this whole idealistic view of what the perfect gifted person looks like. They're good looking, they're tall, they're athletic, they're sporty. And there's a great, well, Deborah Ruff wrote a recent wonderful gifted grown-up book that explains that's not exactly true. Um, but also there's a, another person I'll link, I can't pronounce her name, but Gifted Grown-Ups is a book I highly recommend because it explains that and I think Deborah Ruff, Five Levels of Giftedness, personally explains that a lot of the bell curve that you learn in the educational um, community does not apply to all gifted students. And especially with people like me who are twice exceptional, if they don't do well on tests, if they don't have a good working memory, if they don't have a way to transition that information from the working memory to long-term memory, and they can't recall that information, they're not going to do well example my parents and my sister and the difference between my education and theirs I want to talk about because I when I look back at my childhood I know I had overexcitabilities and when I say overexcitabilities it's a reference to Kazimierz Dabrowski's positive disintegration theory and a good summary without going too deep because I do want to have the positive disintegration um, podcast people on this podcast and talk about the Dabrowski Center because their work is wonderful. But a good indication is gifted students are going to differ from high achieving or what school would call a bright student. And a good website reference for this besides Deborah Ruff's books would be kitekidmama.com. And why do I bring this up? So she's a mom like me and she had to advocate for her son. Her son was bullied and excluded since the age of five, which is interesting because that's kind of the age that my daughter started experiencing school issues. So her website, she'll even put a disclaimer that says a lot of the work in it is free. You can donate to help her. Um, but she really breaks it down in a wonderful way. And she breaks it down for parents, educators, and clinicians. So I think pediatricians should know about this information too. Because what you're going to see is asynchronous development. And there's a wonderful gifted books that talk about asynchrony. There's wonderful uh, free webinars on YouTube that talk about asynchrony. And, you know, when I say overexcitabilities, there's five different types of general overexcitabilities or intensities. A lot of people 
understand this or also call it sensory processing disorder, but it's sensory sensitivities. Um, but essentially, let's get down to the nitty gritty. Some common indicators of a gifted child is going to be advanced vocabulary, advanced grammar, advanced sayings for their age. They might appear to look like a walking encyclopedia. They have an insatiable curiosity, unusual interest for their age. There's something called existential questions that happens usually about five years old. I had that. But the problem with my upbringing was I had so many <laughs> coincidences that just explained my traits away. So I'm very blessed to have been identified in 2002. Um, but let's explain more. I don't want to jump the gun. So when we talk about more traits, usually gifted kids are more comfortable around adults or older kids than their age peers. And they're also going to be extremely self-motivated. And a comorbidity is allergies and asthma, which is funny because my husband didn't believe he was gifted, but he grew up with asthma. Um, gifted kids, I wouldn't even say... I think this is a generalization, but some gifted kids do like puzzles and problem solving. Um, some adore puns, are fascinated by anomalies, uh, sense of humor that classmates don't understand. Uh, they notice details that others don't. They have a strong sense of cause and effect, strong sense of justice, um, emotionally sensitive. And for me, what's my earliest indication? It's hard for me to unpack whether it's my dyslexia or my giftedness, but I have strong memories from my childhood that I know I probably shouldn't have, but I do. So, and I, I know it's because of my emotions, because I remember being in a high chair and I asked my mom, I was like, how old was I? I don't remember if I was like two or three, but I remember I, I was hungry and I asked for a sandwich. And in my mind, I loved the sunbeam white bread sandwich commercial. So that commercial would play in my head and I wanted that sunbeam white sliced white bread with peanut butter, jelly, and that's what I wanted for lunch. Well, we were a low-income family and my dad liked variety of breads for whatever reason, but my mom only had this Subway sandwich bread. And for me as a kid, that was too much bread. Uh, even as adult today, sometimes that's too much bread. It's, it throws off the ratio, but my mom being the way she was and the way she was raised with a very authoritarian mother was like, I mean, it's a kid. It's going to, if they're hungry, they'll eat. Right. We're told that all the time. So I remember she made me this PB and J sandwich with the Subway bread and I was not happy. It was not what I envisioned it is not what I wanted. And so I tossed it to the ground. And for me, I remember feeling the vocabulary inside myself, but I know outside I was just screaming, crying, hitting, yelling. And I've recognized this now as a parent with my kids because a lot of the way that they say their words or the way that they talk really fast is so similar to when they were a toddler. I just now understand what they're saying and to have that kind of self-awareness from my younger years and to see it as a parent is very surreal. Um, another thing is I had a lot of sensitivities. I, I've made posts about this where I hated jeans. I didn't like scratchy jeans. I am so jealous my daughter gets to grow up with leggings. Uh, my mom, thankfully, was very supportive and 
because she hated wool growing up. So she hated the itchy wool that her mother made her wear. So she was very rebellious and wanted to be better than her mom. And so I remember it was like the first Target that came to our state and or Kohl's. It was one of these like fancy department stores and we had to drive like one or two hours away. But my mom found a sale and it was the Cherokee brand and it was corduroy pants. And so she stocked up and I was so grateful. And I, looking back now, I hope I showed the amount of appreciation I felt in my heart because I was so happy that I had a parent who believed me and didn't belittle me and supported me with that sensory sensitivity. And there's a lot of memories I don't have, but my mom will tell me that I hated diapers. I would roll them down to a point below my hip bone so then they wouldn't bother me. Um, I do remember I sell, I potty trained myself. We had a, um, little training potty and my parents had a waterbed and I don't really remember potty training, but I just remember that, <laughs> I don't know if like I overheard them talk about like, oh, what if it leaks? But I remember like being very hypersensitive to if it leaks. And so I saw a leak happening and I used my potty to catch the water. And I told my mom and I remember she swooped me up in her arms and was like, oh, thank you. Like, you're so cool. Like you helped save the apartment from being flooded. Um, so I have that memory. I did love swings. In my, when I was growing up in the nineties, my grandma gifted us, um, which I think they're banned now, but like a, it was almost like a mini indoor swing set. And I got so big to the point where I could crawl in myself and I would swing. And that's how I would self-soothe. And so I would swing all the time. And I remember being at the pediatrician, um, cause I would just like certain soft things too. Like I had like, um, like certain socks when they came out of the dryer when they're really warm, I would like that. And I would pull off the little beads and a roll them on my fingers. And my mom's a nurse, she's an LPN. So she had other nurse friends and she'd ask them and they'd tell her, oh, it's fine. You know, a lot of kids are doing that these days. And I remember her going to the pediatrician and mentioning something and the pediatrician was like, she'll grow out of it. It's fine, don't worry about it. And it's weird because I've had those similarities with my own children's experience. And when you hear, don't worry about it, you're a mom, you're gonna worry about it, (laughs) right? You're gonna Google anyway. Um, But I think that's a real difference between generations is when I was growing up, a lot of concerns were kind of pushed to the side. And it's not that I think that they didn't care about early intervention. I just don't know if they knew the value of it. Um, but also with giftedness, it's so misunderstood from that time frame, And even today, who knows if any interventions my mom would have got would have been beneficial to me or just end up being traumatic. So that's why I really love the Kite Kid Mama website because it tells you some details. So I remember strongly that my mom was working. I don't, I don't think my dad, um, I don't remember if he was interested in ever teaching me anything. I know he liked to draw, so I would learn just by watching and observing him. But education, I remember I would always ask my mom to get me pen and paper. Or if she went to the store, if I knew she was going to the store, I'd say, hey, can I get some paper and pencil? I saw my sister doing that for school and I wanted to be like my big sister because she's eight years older than me and I wanted to do school. And so I remember uh, my mom trying to teach me how to write my name. 
And at that time, they had a lot of these fat pencils. I, I don't know if it was related to occupational therapy at the time, but I was really into them. And I wanted to spell my name. And my name has two vowels and then two con Well, a vowel, two consonants, and then a vowel. And I remember asking my mom, well, can't I just spell it and put the two vowels and then the two consonants and then be done? And she goes, no, because that's not how your name's written. So that's my first understanding concept of like, oh, like letters have different meanings and that's why my name sounds different spelled a different way. And I remember, because my mom, we would always go to thrift shops or she'd get gifted books and, well, not gifted education books, but as a gift books. And I remember specifically before I went to school where I would look at the page and I did not understand what those letters meant. It looked like gibberish. It looked like they were just a jumbled mess on the page. And so I would make up my own stories. And I remember begging my mom to read with me. And it's not even that my parents didn't want to read. I think I know my mom is just like tired from working all the time. Uh, but me and my dad watched a lot of like Schoolhouse Rock. We'd watch cartoons together. But mostly, um, I never, I, you know what? I don't remember seeing my sister read. And to this day, she hates reading, but it's probably related to her ADHD. So I don't blame her. But I remember going to school in kindergarten. And this was in, because I was born um, in the fall. So I couldn't go to school in the spring like I wanted to. I had to wait until the fall. And so I was five going on six. Um, when I started kindergarten and we even started school late because there was a hurricane that hit our school so they had to delay the opening and I had an older I had two teachers I had one older teacher and one paraprofessional where she wasn't um, as old as the main teacher but she was like already a mom and older in life right and so you knew the main teacher she had the most experience and she was like a grandma like I loved her so much and our class was kind of small. We only had 11 kids. Um, there was only two boys. And I remember in the middle of the year, like one kid left. So we went down to 10 kids. But I remember the teacher, for whatever reason, had hooked on phonics workbooks. We didn't have tapes. We didn't have videos. And I knew what hooked on phonics was, was from commercials on TV. Because we had the muzzy VHSs from commercials on TV. And that's back in the day when PBS kids, you could get you could buy stuff or tell your parents to buy you books and stuff on TV to support PBS kids. Um, and so I knew what Hooked on Phonics a little bit was. I knew, oh, that's a program that can teach me how to read. So I was very excited. And I remember the first day of kindergarten that I could break the alphabetic code. And as soon as I broke that code, my whole world opened up. And I remember being moved from the regular reading group to the advanced reading group in class. But I wasn't separated. It was in the same classroom. It was different, like, small groups. And it wasn't a big deal either. And I wasn't made bored. Um, I don't even remember, like... I don't even remember like a big difference. And it was never a big deal in class either. It was just like, okay, that's the reading group that you're in. And because I knew it was the advanced group because I knew the teacher said that, but I don't think she announced it to the class. But I remember it was only a short time before I had, I guess I, I, they must have been like phonics or decodable books. And then I moved on to actual literature books because I remember reading like Clifford the Big Red Dog. And I remember because we had a boat shaped 
reading area with pillows and I could just chill there and read and I wouldn't be bothered and it was fine. But I remember like going back um, to the regular table and like we do, you know, cut and paste and arts and crafts. And I remember having trouble with scissors. And I always attribute it to because my mom is left-handed and I'm right-handed and my dad's right-handed, but my sister's left-handed. So I remember witnessing my mom struggling with scissors. So I always attributed to that. Um, and I even remember before I was writing, my mom would say, which, which hand feels right? And so she said, put up your thumbs and feel in your hand which one feels right. And I remember shaking my left hand and trying to write. And I was like, nah, that's not it. And then I would use my right hand to write. And they were like, oh, okay, well, you're right-handed. But to this day, like if I cut chicken or if I do anything with my hands, I can use both. And I remember even when I was going to learn guitar, like somebody told me like, oh, that's the wrong way to do it because you're right-handed. Or even wearing my watch. I wear my watch in my right hand. But it's because I saw my mom wear her watch on her right hand and it just feels better that way. Um, but it's so interesting to me how we have like the society standard of what is right for each hand, but it's not in the concept of what's right for that person. But school was the real first example of that for me. And so we changed schools from kindergarten to first grade. And when I went into first grade, I loved my school. The school, I feel, was very sensory friendly because it wasn't all in one building. We had an education building for the primary grades. The older grades had a separate building. There was a separate building for art. There was a separate building for gym. And there was a separate building for the lunchroom. And the playground was in the middle. And there was like, I think there was like three different playgrounds. Um, but for me, it worked because I, well... See, I had sensitivity to like fireworks, but I think it was more the surprise of a firework happening. So you didn't know the loud sound was coming and I couldn't anticipate it. But if I went to a lunchroom where everybody was loud, it didn't bother me. And there was no constraints on how loud you could be because the lunchroom was separated from the learning classrooms. And I noticed that shift happen when I moved state lines. So in first grade, we moved from North Carolina to Georgia. And that's when I saw the hugest shift in education because no longer were they separated. And my Georgia school was all encompassed in one. We had a traffic light system in the lunchroom. And so if you were too loud, which I'm dyslexic and I have two New York parents, I'm gonna be loud, you would get in trouble. My first day in Georgia, a girl tricked me and she said, hey, do you wanna play a hand clap game? Um, Miss Mary Mack. And I said, yeah, of course. And it was in the lunchroom. And I didn't know the rule. The rule was you could not talk. And, or like they had some like cup system. If the cup was upside down, you couldn't talk. Or if it was up, you couldn't talk. I can't remember. But I didn't know. And I was given no leeway. There was no instructions. There was no listing. There was no, nothing posted. The way I was supposed to learn was from punishment. So I got sent in timeout my first day ever. And so I couldn't, I think it was like recess. I couldn't go to recess and I had to like sit in timeout for like 10 minutes. Um, and that's when I hated my first grade teacher. And I and hate is such a strong word for me. Like I'm saying like loathe, like I did not like that lady. I was so mad at my mom. I was like, why did we have to move from a great school to this school? I did not like it. So my first grade year, I did not have a great time. 
Um, and people don't realize that those things impact children because my mom is a single mom. So there was divorce. We had moved. So there's that. And I was in a new school. So I remember, I don't know if it was a standardized test or whatever in first grade, but something about my scores or academics prompted them to give me a creativity test because in Georgia, you can't just be identified with one thing. You have to fit three different criteria. Um, I think it's still the same today. But anyway, so I had to fit three different criteria and so they wanted to test my creativity. And I remember this test to this day. So it was first an oval. And they said, be as creativity as you want. They didn't explain the time frame to me. So I had no clue how much time I had, but I knew I didn't want to go back to my general education classroom. So I was going to milk it all the time I could because I was in this little bitty trailer that was cool. It looked like it was like a second or third grade classroom. It had cool stuff on the wall. This teacher was nice. I wanted to stay there, right? So I took my sweet time on that first page. And then she explained to me, she was like, I think she looked over and she was like, how much time did she spend on that? And so she was like, well, you know, you got other pages. And I was like, oh no. So I had to flip through the other pages and I just did the best I could, right? Well, I didn't get chosen for giftedness that year. It wasn't until third grade that I got retested and then I knew what to do. And I was like, oh, I've done this before. And so I did as much detail as I could on that first page, but then I sped through and filled out the rest of the pages, right? And I don't even know if that was what I was supposed to do. I just know that after that, then I got selected for the gifted program. And it's not the same as what we see today. Like my daughter's example when she was in her old school placement was they advertised that they started gifted in kindergarten, but did they really? No, it was just a STEM program that they claimed was gifted probably so they could just funnel money right but my experience with gifted was very awkward because I had high hopes the I got pulled out of class and I think it was like every six weeks or so I got pulled out of my general education class and I saw similar kids that I knew in my grade um but just from different hallways and we got put in this one classroom that looked like it was like an old computer classroom but essentially on that first day of that gifted pull-out program that I think, I think it was third grade, I remember just being dropped into a class that was already in the middle of a curriculum. And I can tell you from this day, it was like, I can't remember any other thing, but I remember that first day they were learning about flight and they were learning about Kitty Hawk. And I was so happy because I was like, oh, I love, I love cats and like, oh, Kitty Hawk sounds so cool, you know, the Wright brothers, now I'm like super interested in the Wright brothers because they're dyslexic. So I'm like, oh, cool, right? Wrong. So <laughs> I remember like the teacher just found so much joy in kind of picking out a student that thought they knew the answer and then just like beating them down with the truth. And because I remember we'd learn about like, you know, the Greek mythology and, you know, she would be like, who, how did they make the wings and the feathers to this? And we'd be like, I don't know, glue. And she's like, no, they didn't have glue. And I'm like, really lady? Like it was so extra. I, I don't know. <sighs> but I do remember at a certain point, there was like a project that I forgot about, probably my working memory issues. And cause I knew this class was like BS. I knew I wasn't getting a real grade in the class. 
And I've written about this before, but it felt like just like kind of like a gimme, like a reward of like, oh, you're our students that are getting the perfect standardized test scores. Here's a, um, what's it called? A superlative or just like a, you know, an extra class to help you like, you know, as a gimme, right? And so we had to create some invention and the teacher, she, I don't know. I don't even know if it had to do with flying. But anyway, I remember it was a last minute thing. And I was just like, oh, like, and my mom worked. I didn't have, I wasn't one of those kids that had the luxury of like, hey, I got a project due tomorrow. And my mom would run to the store. No, the stores were closed. Um, we didn't have those materials at home unless I could like, you know, print it out or something. I did not have it. And so I remember going to class and I was really nervous. And at a certain point, I just remember I was like checking out and I was like, listen, you know, you're not prepared. Just listen and just wing it. And the first kid to go was this girl that was like what you'd consider like a teacher's pet. And she had her dad bring in her project and it was all made with popsicles and it was all wooden. Like you could tell like her dad probably did woodwork and so he helped her with it. And it was called like a star catcher. And she showed this whole demonstration of how she would like use this wooden machine to catch a star, to power something, to fly and all this. And the teacher just praised her. And I'm sure you can probably tell what race she was and blonde hair, blue eyes. And <laughs> so all these kids came through and not to say that every project was perfect, but when it came to me, all I could find at home was like a Barbie and some tin foil. And so I was like, let's make this into a ship. And I was like, mm, a hovercraft, I don't know. And the teacher was like, wrong, there already exist. Um, like we already have hovercrafts. And she gave me like a F and made this whole spiel and was like, this is what you should not do. Like, this is what happens when you don't prepare. This is what happens when you don't do research, all this and that and the third. And so my entry into gifted education was uh, underwhelming to say the least. And looking back now, it's because I didn't have background knowledge. I didn't have a support system. I didn't have parents that could help me with projects night after night and work on it weeks after weeks. And these are things that you don't talk about when you consider gifted education because you have to admit that then you're excluding some children. And that's what really bothers me because we have so much technology today. There is no excuse to exclude a child. We should know how to level the playing field and invite all children to learn, but we don't. And it's also interesting to me because when you research gifted education, the only reason we have something established as like gifted classes is because during the 1920s and after the Great Depression, we had too many educated people especially women. So where are they going to go? Uh, back to school. <laughs> so when you don't have enough jobs to keep people employed, you create more education. And so that's what happened. And it hasn't changed since then, which for me is so ironic because what age are we living in? We need more people in jobs. Why aren't we creating more pathways for kids that are gifted or, you know, have an idea of what they want to do? Give them an entrepreneur track. Give them a solo entrepreneur track. You know what I'm saying? Like even this podcast, like give them that pathway or create opportunities and create doors, apprenticeships, internships where they can do that, learn that and create. 
because we know from research and there's a lot of gifted advocates that will prove acceleration works. And for me, I don't think that's whole grade acceleration either. We shouldn't hold kids in one grade when we know about asynchrony. If you're really good in math, you should be able to take any class that you can master at a certain point. You shouldn't be held back in first grade arithmetic if you're doing a third grade word problem. Like kids should not be held back just because it helps teachers stay employed or it helps the school stay funded or it helps the community. That's not how education should be. That's not how progress works. And so it's very frustrating to me as a former gifted student and seeing all the problems and hoping that education will get better before I had children because I have conflicting stories and I didn't have a great elementary gifted education. I had a wonderful time in middle school gifted education. And that was in the, what you call honors program, which I don't even know if they fully do anymore. I know you have to have like a certain population of gifted students to be able to have a fully gifted classroom. And there's not, it's not hundred percent good. There was a lot of times where I hated language arts because I did not want to diagram a sentence. I did not care about a noun. I did not care about pronouns, adjectives, gerunds, all these things. I was not going to be an English major. I did not care. And, but I did love reading The Giver. I loved reading The Outsiders. I loved reading Treasure Island. I loved reading books and doing book reports and talking about books. That was my favorite. And then I was always terrible at math because I didn't have a good base of number sense. I had to teach myself a lot of things in math because I had teachers get frustrated with me and all my questions. And so they just leave me to my own devices. And that's why I don't believe in this project-based or student-based learning or exploring, what is it called, inquiry learning, because it's a cop-out. Of course, teachers are going to love if you make a whole curriculum out of a project, so then all they have to do is grade a few grades and then they're done. But is the student actually going to be assessed on what they learn? No, they're going to do the bare minimum to get the passing grade. That's why I advocate for explicit instruction because I've been a victim of implicit instruction. That story I told about first grade where I didn't know the rules. When a kid doesn't know the rules, yeah, they're gonna get in trouble because they don't know what to follow. And I loved in college when I went and there was rubrics. In high school, that's when they kind of started implementing rubrics and high school, I was in the 2000s, so I witnessed the shift for my lovely sister having civics classes and driver's ed. And I did not. My mom had to pay like $500 for me to get a driver's class, um, only for it to like lower the insurance like 10%. So I couldn't even get my own car and get insurance because it was out of our price range. Um, So that means I couldn't do dual enrollment. I didn't have a vehicle to get to college and I didn't have all these things. So what did I have access to in high school was AP classes. And so I took them. I didn't always, I couldn't always afford the AP test at the end of the year. And if I knew I wasn't going to pass, I wasn't going to ask my mom for that money. 
I know when it, the time came for SATs and ACTs, my mom wouldn't have money for that. Even the pre-SATs. Um, it really seemed like a money-making scheme for these test companies, and there was no benefit for me. Then, applying to college. I didn't have the money to get college applications or to do all those things, so I opted out. I refused to take the SAT. I refused to take the ACT. I should have probably taken the... Um, that test that you do to get into the military, but I refuse that too. I was burnt out. And I'll be honest, I was burnt out of school from fifth grade. And that's not to say I didn't like school. I mean, fifth grade, I won the DARE essay contest. I did win a lot of essay contests. I, my problem is I don't like to write. I don't even like to talk, but people, have always praised me for how I write and certain things. It's just my preferred communication style. I I used to take chorus class and people praised me for what my voice sounded like. And I was just like, why? What, what do you like? So if anybody listens to this podcast, I'm going to tell you straight up, I'm going to be shocked. I am not doing this because I like to do it. I'm doing this because I see a need for it. And I see a need for documenting my experience because people fully fundamentally misunderstand it. People look at my test scores and they look at my transcripts and they think, huh, she did great in school. She was a high achiever and gifted. And I'm sure they use my gifted traits to support all their ideas of what a gifted student's supposed to look like, but that's not true. I specifically remember in high school, I was in a psychology class, which the psychology curriculum was so outdated they were showing Sybil which is a debunked movie about <laughs> a lie um <laughs> and so I remember we were talking about social law sociology and they were talking about outliers and they were talking about um they were doing like an experiment of oh well you know did you come from a you know a two-parent home or a single-parent home and like whoever had their hands left raised it was like the first introduction to aces it was like oh well you have adverse childhood experiences and you shouldn't be such 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 and I remember telling the teacher I was like well what about me because I have all these and I am honor roll (laughs) like your statistics didn't define me where is the help for people like me? And he was just like dumbfounded. He didn't have anything to say. So for people like me, there usually is no help. You're expected, and there's a lot of myths around giftedness, like, oh, you're good at everything. Well, if you're gifted, you should have no problems. And that was a lot of issues that I found that I ran into when we tried to advocate for my daughter, because first, when I even brought up giftedness, uh, we got eye rolls. And what was their response? Well, every kid is gifted. And the problem with that is, no, not every kid is gifted, but yes, every kid has gifts. And so, no, it's not bad to acknowledge the neurotype of gifted. It's bad if you assume that everybody has the potential to be gifted, which they don't. And that's the discrepancy that I'm finding a lot online is because we underestimate the people that actually do have a gifted neurotype and we overestimate the people that don't have the gifted neurotype but they learn how to conform and they learned how to fit and work in this neurocentric world and how to exist and so they are rewarded while the people that actually are gifted 
just because they might have first been identified as ADHD or autistic or dyslexic, they are robbed from that gifted experience. And that's not fair. And that's what is a lot of conflicting for me looking back at my past because I took the Made by Dyslexia screener and I'm definitely dyslexic, but would I have gotten the gifted education that I did if I was identified as dyslexic first? Probably not. And the only reason I believe that I was identified and gifted in the first place is because of No Child Left Behind and the standardized testing. Because with data, they could not argue. They could not deny. And it's not that they didn't want me in the gifted program for benevolent reasons. It's for money. They got more funding for the more gifted kids that they found. And how do I know this? Because every so years, I had to get a gifted thing signed for my mom so the school could still get gifted funding. And I had to keep like a certain grade level. Um, I think it was like a C plus in order to stay in the gifted program. And if I didn't, that would get taken away from me. Even though I'd already been identified as gifted, I would have been punished for not getting a good grade. Like, could you imagine that if you said for a special education student, like if they had a physical disability, oh, well, you can't get a wheelchair if you don't have an A. In what world is that okay? Like these things are so fundamentally skewed and wrong I just don't understand it. And especially when we have in 2023 neuroscience and we have an understanding of neurodiversity and we understand that it's hereditary and we have all these fundamental understandings, but there's still misinformation. It just doesn't make sense to me. And so going forward, what really made me, well, I found this out when I was doing research for my daughter, but I suffered from underachievement starting in high school because after I was done and burnt out from AP classes, I just wanted to hang out with my friends. So my senior year, I did not take any advanced classes because I already knew I wasn't going to apply to college. So I hung out with my friends. I was their tutor. I helped them pass class. There's a lot of people that graduated because I was in class next to them, helping them understand the work when the teacher did not care. And I should have known then. I probably should have went to become a teacher or something. But we were being told in high school there would be no teachers in our future. We were being told that computers would replace education, that everybody would learn from an app or a website, and there would be no need for teachers. And I had a few friends that went into education, but they always went knowing that it would be temporary. And for them, it was just kind of like, I would relate it to the movie like Mona Lisa Smile. Like teacher early education for women is essentially the replacement of secretarial school or finishing school. And so it was kind of like the safe major that most women went for. And when I went to school, I really wanted to be a physical therapist or do something with biology because I really liked ugh, personal training. And I was a personal trainer at the time. And it's funny because the reason why I like personal training was because I knew how to utilize all the different, which are now debunked, but learning styles. So if I explained to you an exercise, I wouldn't just show you a picture and I wouldn't just tell you what exercise we're going to do. I would bring you our exercise plan. 
I would tell you about it. I would show you in verbal detail. I would show you in words and then I would demonstrate. So I was already <laughs> using explicit instruction inadvertently in my personal training life. And I didn't see the connection when I was in school. So in school, I knew that I wanted to just get my core classes down because that's what they tell you to do. And I had some remedial math I had to take, which algebra in college from a computer was the first time that I understood fractions and algebra because when you go, when you use the computer application, it's not just self-learning. If you need more explicit explanation, there's a button you can click and a textbook they give you to learn more. And so it clicked with me there. So I passed that and as soon as I passed, I didn't have to go back to that class anymore. I took college statistics and I loved it. It was so much fun. Um, so because I wasn't doing so bad in math in college when I thought I was a terrible math learner in high school, because I hated factors and memorizing all that information, I, I didn't want a major where I had to write a thesis. Uh, for whatever reason, I put it in my head that I did not want to write a thesis, that it was scary, it was an endeavor, I didn't want a PhD. I wanted a major where I could get in, get out. And for me, that everybody was telling me that was business. So I switched from a biology major because I, I didn't want to be a doctor. And so I switched to business and then I knew why well, I wouldn't have to write a thesis. But then I saw all the math classes and I kind of <sighs> underachievement kicked in again. And then also lovely perfectionism. So in my old resources from my IEP battles, I can tell you what that is. So perfectionism and absolute or an all or nothing mindset. Really, it's a fixed mindset that believes things are either a success or a failure. Perfectionists feel like things are always or never a certain way. And that absolutely was me, especially in college. Like if I got an A, I was like, oh, great, I'll pass this class. If I got if I got one failing grade, I was like, well, great, I'm, I better drop this class because I'm going to fail it. Um, nobody explained growth mindset to me um that definitely came from parenting and learning about parenting um and so what really got me was it's the downfall of my life is people start to see that I am a gifted student and then they put their expectations and they place them on me and I don't like to live up to them so I reject it so I had a prof I had two professors. I had a history professor that I passed their class and they recommended me to go into their honors college course class and I was like, "Okay, fine." But at the same time, I wasn't support I was working a full-time job. I was working from 4 p.m. to 12 a.m. and then I would take a nap and literally go to class at 8 a.m., come home at 12, take a nap, eat something, go to work at 4. And I know what I did. I burned myself out. I did too much at one time, but it's because I didn't have financial support. I had to get loans. I had to have a job. I was living on my own for the first time. And the funny thing is I, in the financial aid office, I ran into an old classmate and now he's my husband. And so I'd already completed two semesters and I was in my third semester and something told me to avoid fall semester, but I didn't listen because for whatever reason, teachers love to do projects in fall semesters and I hate projects. I don't like working with other 
it's not that I don't like work with other people. I don't like relying on other people to get something done. And I don't even think it's a bad thing. I don't think it's not something I can do. It's just a learned behavior that I know I don't like. And it just, it gets me to a point, and it's probably my dyslexia, where I don't know how to communicate. My executive functioning fails, and I just get furiated. And, well, furious and infuriated. Um, so it came to the point, I had this huge project in my honors history class and another project in my honors language arts class where the teacher wanted us to use the movie Blade Runner. And because he had an autistic son, he thought the whole movie was about autism and autistic people and using autistic people to test other autistic people to determine they're autistic and then eliminate them. And, you know, from a standpoint, you know, maybe he's right. I mean, there's a lot of sci-fi movies that depict neurodivergency and how neurotypical centric worlds use neurodivergent people to siphon out search fellow neurodivergent people and then use that information against us. So I get it. But I did not like being given a topic that I didn't believe in that didn't come from me. And I had to justify his concept. For me, for my project, I chose to write about Fight Club. I thought Fight Club is a perfect movie to describe not just schizophrenia, but any kind of mental illness. Because when you're going through it, you don't, you, you feel like you're normal and you manifest your issues as something else, something other. And I really like that concept, but he didn't. So he not failed, but just like kind of crapped on every idea that I had. So I was just over that class, right? And it was already too far. I couldn't help it. And then on my other project in history class, I had to do this huge research product and I I had fun doing the research. That was fine for me. I loved going to the library and looking through the microfilm and doing research. But at a certain point, you start to realize, oh, these professors are just using us as ChatGPT to fund, do the research for them as unpaid interns to support whatever theory they have made. Because this guy would go on talking circuits and and write books about the history that his students would do. And I mean, at, at a certain point, you have to say like, don't hate the player, hate the game. Like he needs money. Obviously, the university wasn't paying him enough. That's why he had to do those things. But still, it's like, ugh, I don't like to be exploited. And that's what I felt like. So I dropped out. And I went straight into the workforce, uh, was dating my husband. And then we left that job to go to a different job. And then I got pregnant. We had my daughter. He upgraded from his job. And so I've been a stay-at-home mom ever since. Um, which is funny because... In a lot of grown-up gifted books, there are women like me, where we unintentionally kind of live these anti-feminist lives, even though we don't feel anti-feminist. Like, I very much do feel like I'm still a feminist, even though I'm a stay-at-home mom. And the irony is that my dad did the same for me. Because when I was growing up, my mom was the breadwinner. She was the one who worked and my dad stayed home and watched me until a certain point when I got old enough to go to school and then he went back to work. Um, but my mom's not a monogamous person and doesn't like commitment. So when they got divorced, that's when things changed. But 
for me, I, I'm conflicted because I really, truly thought that after I had kids and, you know, I would take this break off work that I would get them set up with school and we researched the school and they're supposed to be really good schools. They're supposed to have gifted programs starting in kindergarten. I thought we were set. I thought as soon as I got both my kids into public school, I wouldn't have to pay for daycare, that we could have a great life. We'd have a two person, two parent income. I'd be able to make Buku's money. I'd find my identity again in whatever job that I chose or I could go back to school and everything would be great, right? And then these school issues happened. And for me, as soon as I stepped into that school and we met and we saw these issues and they didn't understand what gifted was, I was kicking myself. I was like, I should have saw this coming. I knew from my school experience that it wouldn't be perfect. I should have known that it would only get worse and not better. And from an outsider, I do get the discrepancy because constructivism is so deeply ingrained in our education that people don't see outside of it. I battle because I am a person of color. I do like democratic policies, but I don't feel like the monopoly of education is democratic. And the only way to explain that is there's a lot of people that are saying, well, fun public education. Well, that doesn't help people like me who are in primarily Republican towns where they have Christianity in the public schools and nobody's stopping it. They have a chokehold. They have a monopoly on the schools. They're doing whatever they want. They're taking all the books out. They don't care. So there's people like me. And I'm not the first person to witness this in history. It happened when Booker T. Washington went back to Alabama and worked for the Board of Education and did not help his own African-American people because he was a mixed male. And he was supported by his white family to different defranchise his own African-American family. So I know it's not the first time in history to happen. I know we'll be resilient. I know we'll do our best to educate our own children, but it's just sad. It's sad to see history repeat itself when we have the books that record this history to prevent us from repeating it. Uh, Even with reading education, there is no excuse that when neuroscience in 2023 does not support whole language or balanced literacy, that we're still using it. And just like with a gifted education, like we should have evolved by now. We shouldn't have kept it the way it is. We should have embraced acceleration. We should have embraced accommodations and modifications. And that's why my goal is a neuro-inclusive education because that does not exclude gifted students. And that doesn't mean keeping them in general education and just giving them extra work. We have terms like differentiation, personalization, individualization. We have all this terminology. We have the technology where one kid, well, actually a whole classroom of kids can be on computers and they can be at different levels at different times. Now, does that threaten teachers? Probably. But I want teachers to know that you don't have to be scared of technology. Even with the onset of chat GPT, think about how it can accelerate your productivity. And I mean, honestly, if you want to be fully radical, there is research proving that four day work weeks are good. You can't tell me any different that it wouldn't be good for students too. I remember when I was at school, everybody was talking about year round schools. And as a kid, I was like, well, don't take away my summer. But when you have more breaks in the, in the year, you have less burnout. When you are just 
pushing yourself to survive the school year and all you get is two months off and then after those two months you're right back at it that is going to have burnout so i think fundamentally as a society we're gonna have to start realizing that climate change is real and it's not so much about fighting climate change it's about what is gonna work well let's see in the past they had siestas. Maybe we knew we need to be taking naps during the day and just being productive at the coolest times in the day. Maybe we do just need to do four-day work weeks. Maybe we do just need to, you know, focus more on public transportation so we're not outputting so much. I mean, the pandemic taught us, like, how fundamentally things change when people stayed home. I have even seen online, like, maybe the answer is to have everybody work from home every kid learn from home and then we can fully support our community to have homes and we can turn these old office buildings into apartments or multi-level housing we could turn these old schools into community centers where we can learn um my husband even was talking to me the other day about how you know it's crazy that plato and all these ancient teachers that really influenced education and what it is today they did not teach a grade level they usually teach for their livelihood why isn't that considered for teachers what if you're given a class and you grow with that class because we have research that proves that teachers that stay within a classroom do become better teachers and they build those bonds and they learn those students and they become better so why not invest in that teacher invest in their training and give them a pension give them the resources they need and support that teacher so they can in their livelihood take care of a whole class of students for their entire education and then have a whole cycle of that and you have integrated, you could have co-teachers, you could have old teachers with new teachers and put them together and they can learn from each other. And then you have a wide range of knowledge. You have the teacher fresh out of college and you have the teacher that's been out of college for 20 years and you have them working together and you can have that inclusive classroom where everybody can work together. Um, I just don't see how that's radical because, and also, me personally, I feel like we need to include parents in the education process because when you say that you have a teacher shortage and a paraprofessional shortage and you need a one-on-one -on -one aid, who is a better one-on-one -on -one aid than the own parent of a child? Now, that does get difficult when they have multiple children, but if you have 30 children in a classroom, then you at least have 30 parents that can help. What if you pay that parent to be that paraprofessional? then they're invested. They have skin in the game. They care about that classroom. They care about that education. Also, why do we allow teachers to have their kids outside of that education school? That usually used to be a red flag for me. If I knew that my teacher was teaching in a public school and they had a child in a private school, usually that told me they already knew the school system was bad and they didn't want their own children to suffer from that bad education. So why isn't it that we're writing into legislation that if you teach at a school district, your children have to go to that school district because then they're going to be more invested in that school district. I don't see that as a radical idea. Maybe it is, but 
I know this episode kind of went on a tangent, but it's something I'm very passionate about. And I don't want to stop talking about gifted education because I'm older now. I have witnessed a lot of things. I'm not going to name names or schools, but I feel like I do have valuable information on what did not work for me and what did work for me. So if you're here and we conclude today's episode, please remember that giftedness is just another facet of the beautifully diverse spectrum of human condition. And by fostering inclusive and supportive environments, we can help gifted individuals thrive. We can embrace their neurodiverse identities, whether they're young or they're older. And we want to thank you so much for joining the Neuroforming Parent Podcast today. If you like this episode, please like, share, subscribe, and follow me on social media. Engage with me. If you like this episode, message me. If you did not like this episode, message me. But until next time, this is the Neuroforming Parent signing off.